0: Hi everybody, welcome back to the Chabert Show. I'm your host, Chabert Chabert. Pretty excited yet again for my next guest, who I've been fortunate enough to know for pretty much over 12 years. We both have been in this app store world since pretty much the inception. Uh, Rafael, Vivas, thanks for being on The Super Show.
1: Thanks for having me here. It's it's crazy looking back. I, you know, when I met you, I was 18 years old and just getting kicked from the game. And Yeah. Definitely someone that I looked up to when I entered the space. Thanks, man. Well, I think I'm going
0: to have to kind of recollect. was the first time we met. Was it the mob, one of the MobClicks parties? So MobClicks is this... One of the early analytics companies I used to work for, also ad tech company, we used to throw these really cool WWDC parties at this old place called Row, <laughs> right near Moscone Center. And uh, I feel like you came up to me once and you like, hey, we started a company, you should join us. I'm like, who is this teenage guy trying to recruit me <laughs> for his company? And lo and behold, Lovin now is a public company, one of the big poster shop companies, I'd say, in mobile and advertising, especially standalone, which is great. So, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, who you are and your background and what led to getting to, uh, you know, app loving.
1: Yeah. If I had to describe myself, I am a guy that always wanted to do something big and knew that school wasn't my path to get there. I initially started working online around when I was 13 or 14, doing random gigs online, building websites, doing graphics, did server hosting for a bit. Did a prank a talk show at one point. So just did a bunch of different things and got into advertising through my brother. What ended up happening is my brother came home one day for Thanksgiving, I believe, and was telling my dad about you know how his affiliate business was becoming successful and, and how that grew. And my dad wanted me to go and get some experience with my brother. So I joined his affiliate company, which was called The Valley at the time. And I was at the bottom of the totem pole you know, making ads on Photoshop, putting up campaigns, you know, adding terms and conditions onto the sites, whatever the hell was needed, I was the kid. And when I started doing that, I fell in love with the space nice. and just fell in love with online working just in general, because I was given an environment where I was really able to shine with all the skills, you know, I learned work or playing video games on the computer. I was able to really put it to something that's productive and make money. What um, year was this? This was... Wow, I would say probably 2011. Oh, really? 2012. Okay. It's, it's been a long road. Yeah. Actually, this, even, uh, even before then, because Apple 11 started in 2012. So I lied. probably like 2005, 2006, even okay. before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, for me, it was, I knew school wasn't the path for me. Online advertising was my kind of way into the industry. Cool.
0: So that's early age, you got a gist of this. And where was this? Like, where did you test out? Was it here in the Bay
1: Area? where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in Orlando, Florida. Kind of moved all around Florida because my parents got divorced. And, you know, sometimes I stay with my dad who lived in Orlando. and Sometimes I stay with my mom who lived in Jacksonville at the time. So it's kind of just ran around between both places. When I started interning for my brother, I actually went to Schaumburg, which if you guys don't know where that is, that's outside of Chicago. It's a little suburb. And yeah, that's that's where I uh, started working as an intern.
0: Got it. Got it. Intern for his company. Yes. Got, got, got it. it. Okay. And then how long did this happen like?
1: Yeah. So it was about two summers. What ended up happening was at that time, the business, it was small at the time, about twenty dollars to $30,000 a day. But what I saw there was that, you know, there were people who hadn't graduated college that were early 20s who were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And I was like, wow, that's what I want to be. And I knew that I had the skill set to be able to go down that path. And so, you know, once I did that summer internship, for better or worse, I pretty much just disengaged from school and, you know, was full-time focused on work. You know, I would go to school for social reasons and to meet people. But, you know, a lot of times I was skipping classes just to work on, uh, you know, my ad campaigns and, uh, you know, just online advertising. Okay. That's
0: very cool. So... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that at a young age you really realized this and you wanted to do this. And it's great that your brother gave you the platform to do so. It was just only on the weekends, right? When you were back at school, you were working out uh, all the time. Because you were mentioning about like this prank talk show or, you know, graphics
1: and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So once, I mean, that was all leading up into working for my brother effectively. So that was before I was like 13, gotcha. You know, early 14 doing that stuff. And then, once I went intern interned for my brother, you know, I just saw the opportunity there and really fully focused on that.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I know like a lot of stories here in Silicon Valley, it's like the hacker, you start coding, you start hacking like the devices since you were a young age. You were like literally more on the hustler side, focused on like the ad tech world and really getting a gist back then. Were you playing with like SEOs? Yeah, videos? yeah. So- uh, I mean, it wasn't social media just... Pretty much started too. they didn't really do a- ads at that point in time either
1: yeah so what i really focused on and what was my edge was really ad creation because being a kid i just knew what was popular and i would make uh, some hilarious and ridiculous ads so what can you, can you uh, yeah sure videos? so like huh. uh, if you've ever seen iq quiz ad online like uh oh, yeah you know are you smarter than a third grader uh uh-huh. you know is your iq higher than 100 points I probably had something to do with one of those ads being created, or even Funny. or even uh, you it's know cool. did, did a lot of media spend for that. But yeah, my edge was really on the creative side and also just my work ethic. You know, I you know, kind of two things. One, my brother was extremely harsh on me. He wanted to make sure that no one looked at it as, hey, you know, this is the CEO's little brother. That's and good. so I was actually paid like $8 an hour is what went wow. even though I was managing the time like $20,000, $30,000 a day I yeah, yeah. later on at scale of media spend but you know that was one and two I really wanted to prove to myself that I could do something big so there was a lot of nights of you know staying up till 2-3 a.m. Wow. Or spending the weekends just you know testing new ads optimizing campaigns figuring out where I could find lifts because for me it was it was kind of like a drug just that Seeing the numbers go up it you sure. know, the money to me was just a number on a scoreboard. It wasn't like, oh all oh, this money's gonna go in my pocket.
0: So you're living basically the dream you wanted and this is the lifestyle, so it didn't feel like work, basically. Exactly. That's cool. So how long is it just those two summers you were with your brother? Did your brother continue doing this? When did it kinda like yeah. formulate to meeting like Adam and the guys uh yes. love and
1: yeah, so it was about two summers of interning and then I actually moved to San Francisco when I was seventeen. Okay. And I was going to Lincoln High. Oh my gosh. Uh, for anyone yeah. in the Bay Area who knows that. Huh. And pretty much at that same time, that's when I got into mobile because mobile advertising mm-hmm. became big. So we were game theory at the time, running, you know, premium subscription offers, you know, on mobile and buying through sources like Window Media back in the day mm-hmm. uh, and in Moby, well, MobClix was obviously uh, sure. one of the partners as well and, and so on. So that's when I really got into mobile. And that's when I got a chance to meet Adam. A funny experience. The first time I met Adam, actually, I, I uh, brought him and his wife water, okay. uh, but I never met him. There was an internal dashboard we had of kind of who drove the most conversions. And he was at the top under uh, an entity at the time. So, you okay. know, I'd always admired him from afar based on, you know, sure. kind of seeing his, his stats on the board, especially because he was the only other guy pretty much above me. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah, that was my, you know, connection and dad. It was, didn't he have a, Gosh, Chicago too or no? Yeah, so he uh, worked out there in, in banking, and then also when that's he met my was. brother, uh, and they you know ran the last advertising business together. He was out there. Got it.
0: Yeah, 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 that's cool. And then can you for everybody uh, who doesn't know much, can you give you a quick like pitch about AppLovin who you are, and then go into like the early days and
1: like when it started? Yeah, sure. So AppLovin is a leading mobile platform. We're primarily known for being a leader in mobile advertising. We also have a large games business and content business. Yeah, that's uh,
0: the two I know. And then what's the backstory of when 11 started?
1: Yeah, so Apple started in 2012. It was just a few people in a room that, you know, it was Adam and his previous founders that he'd worked with uh, at Life Street. That's right. And also just through the affiliate days, our CTO John actually came from that as well. But yeah, it was just a small group of guys that really understood ad tech and saw an opportunity here. In fact, how it initially happened was when I ran a mobile ad network before or for this company, this previous company, my brother's company, App Lovin was an app recommendation tool. It was the apps that you love. You know, probably dating myself, but there was a company called Open OpenFaint back in oh, yeah. the day. Nice and App Lovin was trying to become the open Fate, And so Adam was buying traffic from me for App Lovin'. And once he saw that a 17 year old kid who was having success with one engineer. Huh. He was like, hey, You know, I got to go back to my roots of advertising. Yeah. Uh, and he convinced me to come on board and join the team. And how he successfully really did that was because initially I didn't want to join, actually, I wanted to go through YC and join a gaming company. Interesting. Uh, that was kind of my vision because I'm a big gamer. Sure. But when I met Andrew Crom, his co founder of Applovin, and John Kristinek and Furcon as well, which was our former CTO. I knew that I couldn't pass upon the opportunity to work with these guys because they were just exponentially more intelligent than I was.
0: Yeah, I remember for, for Khan back in my plug-and-play days when he was testing out mobile apps even before the App Store launched. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And, and I remember at that time, 2012, I joined uh, it was Addiction back in the day. And Addiction was like pretty much what you guys are doing now. We did everything. We did game distribution, photo sharing, game publishing, you name it. We wanted to be kind of that. Network. We even did social network competing against Snapchat called ClipChat. And you can imagine we failed with that. But like um, incentivized installs was like pretty hot back then, helping people kind of offer a deal and get it to click. I believe AppLovin was the early into that space until probably Apple said, you know, you can't really do this. Is that correct back in the early days? Yeah, so
1: we did play around with some uh, incentivized installs. But yeah, we ended up uh, cutting that, that part of our business line.
0: Yeah, and advertising is pretty cutthroat. I mean, I remember when you guys were fundraising in the early days, everybody was like, yeah, it's not as glamorous. Yeah, this and that. And it was really hard, you know, in compared to like, let's say a platform company that goes through a Combinator, as you mentioned. So I don't know if you had any of that experience or was that focused more on the, the founding team. But it's interesting because you guys have, you know, gone through many waves. One of the early days was like the funding aspect, right? A lot of the people
1: in the Valley didn't invest in you guys. I think Adam met with over 15 different VCs and everyone shot him down or they wanted to take way too much of the company. And because of Adam's, you know, conviction and how big the space can be in his previous experience, him, my brother, and a few other people really funded the company. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was all angels initially. Sure. And, you know, it was actually good rate right for us because it forced us from day one to aim for profitability. And so, taking into that a little bit, I mean, we were really scrappy.
0: You um, guys are still kind of scrappy, actually, as a company, even as a public company. Can you actually describe this culture, because you're still pretty scrappy as a public, for a public yeah, company. That's pretty so, impressive. So
1: I think kind of two things here. Yeah. Our background coming from, you know, the affiliate space and the advertising space in general, you know, our goal is to provide monetization and we had to be a profitable business. How can we offer monetization to other developers if ourselves as monetization structures can't be profitable? So that was our focus from day one. And two, we really, really, really leaned on the tech. And what that allowed us to do is truly deliver better results. And so when we'd go to developers and we would offer to do a deal with them, it was really something that we would do where we would guarantee them deals where they'd get higher revenue and CPMs versus traditional ad sales where you go take somebody out for a nice dinner and you convince them to work together.
0: Okay, awesome. That's great. Yeah. So, and who, I mean, you guys are profitability from like the early days, like who are some publishers? And game studios, or is it was mostly game focus? It was it not game? I was like,
1: I'm Yeah, so you
0: mentioned games. I'm a gaming guy, and this is like a small industry.
1: I would say it's really interesting. Adam actually, in the beginning, made sure to find mm-hmm. some big developers and actually work closely with them. And, and in fact, because of their early bets on Apple and they got equity in the company. So it was non gaming and gaming. If I think about the earliest clients back in the day that we used to work with, were guys like GameView. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a uh, DNI-owned uh, studio. A lot of international utility apps, developers overseas, Zymad.
0: Yeah, ZyMad's is the, the Russian company that had like utilities slash games. Yeah, like, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I know there's been like these scanning apps, uh, some of these studios from other parts of Europe. Uh, those
1: flashlight apps and stuff yeah, like that it was really big for us.
0: Yeah, and then until all those either consolidated or just kind of sustained at their level, You know, you had to get to like the bigger companies and bigger funding got involved. Can you explain, like maybe in a nutshell, what is mobile advertising for folks listening in? You know, like you have your device. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So mobile advertising, I look at as one of the most effective ways to advertise to a consumer. And the way that I would think through it is that advertising to a user on a medium, which they always access every single day and access several times a day and typically for multiple hours on end. Correct, And there's very easy ways to track that even after the latest changes that have happened around privacy, just, you know, who's clicking on it, who's installing it. And so it's arguably, I would say, the most effective advertising medium out there.
0: Yeah, so from my perspective, I've been telling people, like when the inception of the app store came, this is like, I knew this is the future of the eyeball. Like this is where... Our generation, obviously, much younger now. You can see with like the social platforms, like TikTok and Snap and others, this is where literally they're watching all the content, entertainment they want. And uh, you know, for a company like yours or the ones I work for, this is like the great platforms to literally display ads. And the type of ads we see are like their abundance, right? They're obviously full screen ad, uh, reward, and andstitial. There's a banner, but it's a lot more interactive on a device that you're consuming content like this than versus like television traditionally, mm-hmm. right? So, can you explain like like a one to one like game to game ad and or rewarded video? What that means again? Uh, these are a lot of probably people listening in who don't know this. Yeah.
1: So, a one to one game ad is advertising a game within another game, and it's extremely effective just due to the context. You know, if you're playing a game, you're most likely interested in playing another game. Yeah. So effectively how these ads are typically done within games are through banners, which you see at the bottom, or something called interstitials, which are really just full screen ads. And then rewarded ads are just ads where people get an in-game reward for watching the advertisement.
0: Yeah, okay. And, and the rewarded ads is kind of like... And there's like a follow-on now, which is called playable, which you can literally play a game, a mini-game ad uh, within, and it's very effective.
1: Exactly. You going um, to play the game before you even download.
0: Exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and this is like a healthy way of actually showing an ad. And then there's a lot of rewards that are allowed. Like,
1: oh,
0: you know, if you want to get that extra sword for your, your character if you've battled the battleground, or you want to have a little bit more strength to hit a home run, watch this rewarded video and you get it for free versus spending like 99 cents to a dollar. Exactly. Yeah. And then you guys have, uh, one of the things I kind of wanted to mention was you've kind of persevered. I mean, you've been around, this company has been around 10 years. There's been moments where it's like the industry... Cracks down Apple, you know the Wall Gardens that you call it that, that stores Apple, Google. They come down continuously. It's also uh, I mean, GDPRs with the global legal grounds, GDPR, CCPA's. I think Apple has gone through this kind of phase multiple times. One of which I remember is you guys were acquired and had to backtrack that. And you know, so I am curious, like as somebody who's like been a co-founder slash early employee of this industry and company, what is some Things that Apple Oven does, again, culturally speaking, that focuses on perseverance. I know, like, the two things you mentioned earlier was uh, focus on the advertising and like profitability and tech. But yeah, besides that, like, what else is there that you could probably mention?
1: I would say one thing that, you know, regarding Apple Oven's culture, the people that work here, in a certain way, the work that we do is their life mission. And so, what you have is people who are always Pushing against status quo and seeing how we can improve things—it's never good enough. Especially for Adam, the guy works almost twenty-four-seven. And when you are working at a company that Adam Froge leads, <laughs> you just—you always have this push, this, this feeling. Where you just, there's more out there, and so I think that's really been something that's been really useful for us. And you know, we're always iterating. And when we hear new things come out, we're always trying them. We're trying to find an edge. Do you have any examples of this? Yeah, chance? so like, you know, I think something that was initially very controversial is when we got into games.
0: Yes. right. right. When we got that's to right. the
1: content space and no one had ever seen an ad network in the West do this. But, you know, I actually was spending time in Asia and two of the biggest ad networks out there are games companies, you know, Tencent being one of them. Correct. Uh, and so, you know, I saw all that opportunity and so did Adam and the rest of the executives here and we, we took a stab in, in that direction. And then also on... I would say the secondary market side on the blockchain side, Vessel, which I'm currently leading up, which is really uh, the capability to add secondary marketplaces to games and applications. So I think those would be two good examples.
0: Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more Vessel? This sounds really interesting and how Apple and... Okay. So is this a new platform? Is this a subsidiary? Is this, Yeah. You guys are a, yeah, a yeah, public yeah. company getting into blockchain. Where do you see this is at with gaming now and where do you see it in the next few years?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So... The way that we look at it is it's a platform. Uh, Of course, the company is subsidiary under AppLovin. And the way we really think through it is, I'd say a lot different than other people. There's $120 billion in mobile spend. But for all of these digital assets that are bought with that spend, there's almost no way for a user to get any money out, which is kind of crazy. I mean, imagine if I told you in 2022, you bought a car. And you couldn't resell your car and get any value.
0: Technically, you, I'm leasing a Tesla and I made a regret. You can't, I can't. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> Elon wants his Teslas back. Yeah. yeah so I know. So anyways, go, go. So <laughs> so that's, I mean,
1: that's like, yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the number is $3 trillion market in the car industry. And almost 40% of it is of that is re-car sales, Yes. Um, is used car sales. So it's really just looking at the massive opportunity here in these digital goods. You just want digital ownership. Yes. And- Giving developers the ability to add a secondary marketplace where users can trade and sell these assets. And this
0: is mobile, I'm assuming. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. That's great. And so what's a great example of this for today?
1: Yeah. So one of our games that's actually live, Match 3D, we did a really interesting integration where users can earn something called a Pro Badge. And they earn the Pro Badge through an event. They compete for it. And the badge has multiple uses. You can use it inside of the game and you get an in-game benefit. So you, you can get a multiplier of stars, which is inside of the game is used for leaderboards without watching rewarded video ads. And then also you have the ability to show off this badge. It's called the Pro Badge. So you will click a pro and it's great for recruiting other people to join your team. Okay. You also have the ability to go and trade this asset on the secondary market, or uh, you can redeem it for $100 with the developer directly. Interesting. So we did that event, and we saw incredible results. And uh, what's really great here is that the average age and demographic of these users is forty-five plus and female, and they have oh, really? zero crypto exposure. And what we saw there uh, was that—is it because
0: of the game? Is it because the mechanics of this was really easy to use? Is it actually because like it's kind of an economy and to get more stimulated? Like, what is?
1: Yeah, is it all the it, it really comes down to—it's all of the above. What I would really say is that we have a game that has a lot of users that are engaged and they play every single day. yeah. And they wanted further ways to express themselves in a unique gameplay experience. And this is something that we're able to integrate into the game. And what we saw was just great feedback from users. And then uh, where do you
0: see this going, going both on a platform and industry level in the next couple of years? I mean, it's, I think the, the founder of Signal, he basically mentioned the biggest issue is going to be like back-end, scale obviously this kind of notion of blockchain is like you know decentralized in reality there's just centralized platforms still you know like the open sea technically is a centralized platform for nfts you know and then the wallets are kind of their own centralized play and then the, the banks and you know like where do you see that like what do you see because you guys are obviously a big platform a little bit more centralized obviously with the app store and that network but you want to go in this space
1: yeah, so our take is a little bit different than a lot of the thought leaders who've already okay. said stuff. So for us, I don't see a world where there isn't a secondary market for trading digital assets on your phone. This type of business has existed for now decades on web. It's existed in all other industries already. So I see this natural evolution here. Regarding you know centralization, decentralization, I think what is the most important is user experience, right? And the fact of the matter is, it is a centralized platform will be able to deliver cheaper prices, and will be able, will be able to deliver a cheaper price for a transaction and a faster transaction, uh, and we'll be able to iterate quicker. And so I believe that there's going to be several platforms, not just one, yeah. that are centralized that end up taking a lion's share of the market.
0: Okay, so you do believe in this hybrid kind of centralized decentralized. Yes. Platform. Okay. That makes a lot more sense.
1: I also look at it as it's not, you know, black and white. It's not like everything is going to be, you know, moving to NFTs and it's all secondary market transactions. I think this is just an incremental monetization. So that's a good
0: perspective to have
1: in-app purchases, you know, there's items like, for example, in a game, if you buy hearts or you buy additional coins, it makes no sense for it to be an NFT, but let's just say there's a rare trophy or a very rare sword where there's only a limited amount of them in the economy it makes sense to have a secondary market around those assets because if there's only a limited amount of them, then the capability to trade them within other users and pass them within the community is
0: imperative. That's very cool. One of the aspects of the show is kind of like the culture aspect. I mean, you mentioned you were living in Asia for a little bit. yeah. Uh, And like, can you give you some context about, you know, you've been like Oxen growing and raised in the U.S., you know, the culture of mobile users here versus mobile users in Asia to a certain extent there. Like, what what did you see there?
1: Yeah, so, where
0: did
1: you live, by the way, in Asia? Yeah, so I uh, spent a lot of time in Beijing. Okay, I you know went all around China, Korea, Japan, Indonesia, say? Vietnam, wherever you know developers were. You know, Australia, you call me and I was on a, on a flight there, <laughs> and I learned everything from each of the cultures. What I can really say about Asia is, it felt like they're just ahead regarding mobile adoption. You know, what does that mean? What that means is that users there are comfortable spending large sums amount of money on their phone there were higher quality mobile games that were developed for the Asian market. A lot of these experiences were just better optimized for the mobile device. And I think some really good examples would be uh, WeChat. You know, WeChat is the super app, you know, for people who don't know, created from Tencent. And you can pretty much do everything. It
0: is a super app. It's pretty much like a social network meets, like, it's literally everything, like an app sort of product. And like, I would picture this, if, you know, maybe people we were older, AOL was trying to do that back in the day where you could literally chat with people because we chat their uber over there you could order groceries and so on and so make forth make payments correct yeah, yeah the payment the qr code payments is fascinating actually so being that i've been working for integral a chinese company my first trip to beijing i was at starbucks <laughs> this is the experience it's, it's funny i look back and I'm, i've created this line and i'm like why did i create this line i'm paying in cash and they're trying to scramble to give me like, to, basically the change and and I look, everybody's paying by QR code. I went to the grocery store, I have some QR code. I'm like, we're so behind here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I think Apple Pay finally and Square, Cash App, all this is kind of coming along in fruition, but it's still like nowhere near what that
1: experience of seamlessness is. I think, you know, maybe I'm off a little bit, but the population in just China alone is about four to five times the United States. And it's just over there, the problem they had a different set of problems, which is Correct. how do they maintain high throughput, right? And so for them, they really leaned on to these technologies to be able to do that inefficiently. I can tell you when I came back from China, it was like I was a little depressed actually regarding some of like the ease of use and things that I had over there didn't exist over here. So like in 2000 and you know, 16, 17, when I spent a lot of time in Asia, mm. you know, we pay for everything. Uh, which is WeChat, pay. Yeah, WeChat yeah. pay, yeah, where here, you know, Apple Pay was just taking off. Yeah. You'd be really lucky. And I was in the Bay Area if you Correct. could find, you know, 10% of the places that would be able to, to, you know, take it.
0: Yeah. I mean, we
1: still have this issue now.
0: Uh, like good examples, I've gone to the UK and over oh, there, you can just Apple Pay and get on, you know, like the the underground the subway there. Yep. Versus here, it's like, you need a Clipper card. You need this, each one of these like systems have their own little card. So yeah I mean there's a bit of a ways to go with the bureaucracy and trying to disrupt that and then I'm intrigued to just like think of like uh a couple quick questions I have at the time we have is uh, one is you're now part of a public company, but you guys still have that startup like mantra maybe you could describe a little bit about that I mean it is complicated because you guys have different entities and companies mm-hmm. and, you know how do you keep it core and you know sustainable again and I'm intrigued to hear your experience of like building a company that was from pretty much a small five, six person person to a public company, how that's been for you.
1: Yeah. So I can tell you how we keep the culture core is ourselves as leaders, really setting the precedent and conversations we have in face or over chat, the way we conduct business. I think as newer employees come on and join the company, they're like, okay, that's how stuff's done here. Yeah. Uh, And so really just leading by example. That's good. You know, Turning from a five-person company into a big company is uh, is definitely hard, and there's challenges, but they're fun, yeah. right? And at each stage of the company, has a way to level up person.
0: That's awesome. And what do you see? Uh, you know, the mobile industry, mobile app, gaming. We're obviously dealing with like global market kind of changes right now. However, like in a long term perspective, you know, what do you see it now and in the next couple of years, right?
1: Yeah, so I was having this debate actually last night uh, with somebody. What I really think you're gonna end up seeing is this, is specifically in the gaming side, you're going to see a lot less games that are single platform that are able to get by just on marketing alone. Can you explain a single platform? Sure. So like, like a is it like mobile only. Yeah, like a mobile game only. Yeah. It's just a simple word game. You know, it's a single play experience. I think, you know, apps like that, you know, they really thrived in, I'd say, the pre-privacy change world because they were able to to really lean on their marketing capabilities to, to grow those types of apps. Yeah. And what I really believe is we're heading towards a world where you're going to see more AAA games come out. For anyone who doesn't know what AAA games mean, yeah. these are your top of the class games like Fortnite, Fall Guys, Call of Duty, uh, Call of Duty yeah. you know, and they're multi-platform.
0: So they're very IP driven. There's core mechanics to play the games, multiplayer dynamics. Yeah, so.
1: and I don't even think they need to be IP driven. So, like a perfect example Same is way. Stumble Guys, right? So, for people who don't know, Kitika Games, Scopely acquired them. Stumble Guys is inspired by Fall Guys. Okay. Yeah. They, you know, in this public data on Sensor Tower, they were generating. Way over ten million dollars. I think it was actually fourteen million dollars at the peak. Maybe it's gone up in, in wow. monthly in-app purchases, right? Crazy, yeah. And their class platform as well. They're on PC. I'm not sure if they're on console, but it's a real multiplayer experience. And so you saw heavy spend there. Another game that we saw come out of the woodwork was Genshin Impact, right? Mm-hmm. That was a team out of China that ended up making that game generate billions of dollars. It was never IP we'd ever seen before, but just a, you know, crushed it on delivering a very high quality experience for users who were interested in kind of RPG games, yeah, cross platform.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I have seen one that's a little bit more IP driven. I'm I'm a little bit more of an IP nerd. Is like Hello Neighbor, which is a studio between Seattle and Latvia, and this like character. Basically, if you're you lost your toy or your product and it's in the neighbor's house, and you got to go, and this guy comes like, "What are you doing in here?" and all that. that. And it, now they made it. It's cross platform, so you could do it on Steam on your phone. And beyond that IP, they sell a lot of products, basically the characters and stuff as toys and gadgets. And they've done mostly revenue-wise on like high net worth like products within Steam and the in-app purchases. So, yeah, it's interesting to see like what's going to happen more and more of this.
1: Yeah. So we don't rely on tokenomics uh, like a lot of other marketplaces. Is it in-app purchase focused? In-app or? purchase focused. And then ad-driven, obviously. Uh, no, we have no ads in our product yet. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so effectively, you know, our business model is we're a secondary marketplace. And okay. We take okay. a percentage of transactions. For us, I think that you know it's really important to distinct the differences between the cryptocurrency side and just the NFT side. I think that NFTs are a great job of delivering that digital ownership, and I think that you can have these really really big marketplaces. If you take away actually having to transact in you know, these cryptocurrencies, just because they're just so foreign to consumers, and to be honest with you, they're just very hard to to actually uh, even interact with. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I don't know, you know, if you've actually tried to play a Web three game, but you know, you got go to go load a wall, you got to go into you know a centralized exchange like Coinbase and Correct. put money in, and then send that money to another wall which you set up on MetaMask, and then go take that money and go connect to the game and probably go convert it into some other third currency. I mean, it's a
0: lot of processes. It reminds me like the way I tell people, it reminds me like early days of trying to buy something on eBay and using PayPal, like just like one or two steps out of like your comfort zone versus I think the closest comfortable purchase for a metaverse like product is Roblox where you still could buy in-app purchase. You don't have to get out of it and get to a wallet so I could see you guys do that. You could basically enable that type of experience within other games with Vessel. That's great.
1: Yeah. And I'm really excited about that because it's really, you know, helping actually shape the future. And advertising, you know, it was great. You know, we built this business, but full screen ads, video ads, rewarded ads, this stuff already existed, right? So the capability to go out there and build something new and kind of write history is, is really fascinating. And something I'm extremely passionate about.
0: Well, it's been so much fun having you on. I know we've been talking about uh, you joining and hearing your story, Roth, and the AppLovin story and, and beyond. It's great to see, you know, like you guys succeed and continue to succeed. And thanks, uh, Roth, for being part of the Chabert Show. All
1: right, Thanks for having me here.
0: Cheers. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.